Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it out, find Ecclesiastes 12. We're going to look at the last couple of verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. The title of this sermon is The Beginning and, excuse me, The End and the Beginning. And I'll start with a quote from Philip Ryken. He says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's quoting chapter 12, verse 8. These were the preacher's first and also his last words, a literary technique known as inclusion. The writer begins and ends his composition by saying the same thing. So if you were here, week one, the week one sermon was titled, The Beginning and the End. And one of the things we said is, you can't understand the beginning of Ecclesiastes unless you've really worked all the way through to the end. So tonight it's titled, The End and the Beginning, and we're thinking about the fact that you really can't make sense of the end of the book unless you've started at the beginning and worked all the way through. And what I'm trying to say to you is that as you think about wisdom literature in the Bible, Ecclesiastes is completely different than Proverbs. You can go to the book of Proverbs, you can open it up, you can put your finger down on a verse, and for the most part, you can make sense of what that verse means without reading the previous chapters or the later chapters. And what I'm saying to you, and I've said to you many times on Wednesday nights, is you really can't do that in Ecclesiastes. You really can't make sense of any one piece unless you understand the overarching point of the book. And it's a beautiful thing that in chapter 1, he starts off right out of the gate talking about vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, and then he says the same thing at the end of the book, chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Sidney Greedness, who I've quoted a lot in this series, is a very helpful book. He says, Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult biblical book to interpret and preach. And I think it's difficult because as Americans, we've been trained to read really quickly and to read in snippets not to read anything in a sustained manner and follow an argument. And to make sense of Ecclesiastes, you can't read quickly and you can't read in snippets and you've got to think about the whole thing even as you're trying to make sense of the pieces. So why would we study Ecclesiastes, such a difficult book? You'd be disappointed if you came the last night and you didn't have to fill in this blank because we're all going to die. That's why you ought to study the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about death an awful lot, and it's certainly part of what we're looking at in these last few verses. Why study Ecclesiastes? Because we're all going to die. So, just a quick show of hands. Any of you make it for every Wednesday night in this series? Maybe a couple? Okay. One of the things that will be very helpful for you going forward... As you think about this book and you come back and it's not quite as fresh on your mind and you're trying to read, is to just understand a few key words that are on repeat throughout the book. So just put these words up on the screen. You need to understand the word gain. It's an economic term. It's only found here in the Old Testament in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's the question of how can you come out ahead? We're not really thinking, how can you come out ahead financially, but at the end of your life as a human being, how can you look back on the day of your death and say, I have now come out ahead? Secondly, toil. Toil. In the book of Ecclesiastes, 
That refers to anything you do in your life. Your job, your parenting, your marriage, your hobbies, your church activities, anything and everything that you do in your life, that's your toil. Under the sun is not so much a place as it is a time, right? The sun is marking our days and it's going around and around and no one can stop it and time is racing by and the driving question of the book is what does man gain, what can man gain for all his toil under the sun? And the conclusion is the Hebrew word hebel. Sometimes it's translated vanity. Sometimes it's translated meaningless. But what it literally means is smoke or mist or vapor or breath. It's something that is so short and so brief that you can't really grasp onto it and control it. And the meaning of the book, the point of the book, the conclusion of the whole book is if you're not careful, you will come to the end of your time under the sun and you will look back on all your toil and rather than seeing and finding gain, you will look back and say, I spent my life chasing the wind. That's a terrible way to end a person's life. A terrible way. But that's the warning of the book. So, let's read the last few verses. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil." Here's the temptation in this last section of verses. The temptation is to jump right down to verse 13 and 14 and to spend all of our time on those two verses. But you can't do that with Ecclesiastes. You have to read slowly. And you can't skip anything. And you've got to think about what he's saying and you've got to read it in context. And so we're going to try to do that tonight. We're going to talk about these final three paragraphs and try to make sense of them. I think there's some interesting things to reflect on. So we'll start with this. The preacher tells us how he went about the task of writing this book. Anytime you read a book, if the author is telling you why they wrote it, how they wrote it, what their thought process is, you ought to think about those things. You ought to consider those things. It will help you to make sense of the book that you're working through. For example, the preacher says here that he wanted to teach people. He wanted to teach people. How did he do it? Well, he wrote this book, Ecclesiastes, and he also arranged and wrote many Proverbs. So essentially, he's talking about the difference in instructive Hebrew wisdom and reflective Hebrew wisdom. Instructive wisdom is like the book of Proverbs. It's straightforward, generally true, little bitty small snippets of information. You can read them in isolation from each other. And reflective Hebrew wisdom, like Ecclesiastes or Job, that say, 
This is how life normally works, but not always. And you need to be prepared to wrestle with the exceptions to proverbial wisdom. Job does that, and Ecclesiastes does that. Why does the preacher write all this and arrange all this? He wants to teach people. He wants them to learn. Secondly, he's intentional and thoughtful. Intentional and thoughtful. I just want you to read what he says in verse 9. He wanted to teach the people knowledge, and he's weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. This is one of the reasons when you study Ecclesiastes, you shouldn't skip sections. He arranged it the way he arranged it for a reason. There's a purpose behind it. There's intention behind it. And I've told you that several of the books that I've used as resources just skip large sections of Ecclesiastes. They're hard to make sense of. They're uh, debated in what the meaning is. They don't seem particularly relevant or as important as other chapters. But you shouldn't skip anything in the book when you're trying to make sense of it because it's been arranged with thoughtfulness and intentionality. Lastly, the preacher aimed for beauty and truth in his writing. Beauty and truth. He says he wrote words of delight and words of truth. And so I just want you to stop and reflect before we rush off. I just want you to think, self-reflection, questions you answer in your own head, not out loud. When I read the Bible, do I approach it as true and beautiful? Now you're in church on Wednesday night, so you probably think, Yes, I think the right answer is yes. I'm supposed to say yes. Do you approach it as true? In reading the Bible, I don't know what the average age in this room is, probably a little bit higher than the college class, certainly a little bit higher than the youth upstairs. You've been reading the Bible, some of you presumably for years, if not decades. As you read the Bible, do you change your mind about things or are you the unique person who showed up on earth and you had everything right before you read the Bible or you may be like the rest of us and maybe it's not all put together rightly in your head and as you read the Bible the job of the Bible is to present you with truth that you then conform your thinking to do you change your mind when you read something in the Bible or do you read it and say it can't mean that can't mean that. Surely it doesn't mean that. I don't think it means that. It wouldn't, wouldn't say that, would it? Do you submit to the truthfulness and the authority of the Bible? Do you read this book and find it to be a beautiful book? I hope so. I hope so. Now understand that there's different genres and different kinds of writing in the Bible, and it doesn't all strike you exactly the same in terms of beauty, but I just want you to listen to what the psalmist says, what David says in Psalm 19. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycombs. He set out to write things that are true, and he set out to write things that are delightful or beautiful. And I hope that's your experience as you read the Bible. So he tells us how he went about writing the book. He also talks to us about the value of wisdom. 
He describes the value of wisdom literature in the Bible. Why do we need this kind of writing? Like the book of Ecclesiastes. First thing he says is wisdom literature is like a goad aiming to keep us on the right path. A goad is the kind of thing you're probably more likely to see if you go to Kenya this summer than in Odessa, Texas. A goad is some kind of stick or tool that has something sharp at the end. And the picture on the left you can see, you would use that goad just sort of by tapping an animal on the back with the, the sharp point. You can see the, the drawing of the farmer here with his oxen and he's poking them. He's got this long sharp stick. That's a goad. That's what a goad is. Why do you use a goad? It's because you want to keep the animals moving. You want them to make progress. I thought about, I didn't pull a video up, but I thought about when our son Clayton used to ride sheep. You get in the pen, they strap you on, you tell them you're ready, they open that gate, and they don't just wait for the sheep to go, they use an electrified goad to get the back of the sheep. And the sheep moves, he takes off, he doesn't stay there. He wants to get away from that. He wants to make progress out of the chute. The preacher says that wisdom literature is like that. It's to goad you, to poke you, to prod you, to move you, to think differently and to live differently and to change things in your life and not to be stagnant and not to be passive, but to be active in following the Lord. We talked about that idea of being active, not passive people not that long ago in Ecclesiastes. So it's like a goad. It's also like a nail. And as a nail, it pierces your heart and it gives us stability. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. A nail pierces something. I thought about this verse and it made me think of Acts chapter 2 where Peter stood up to preach on the day of Pentecost and the crowd listened. And Luke, recording the event, says that the people who listened to Peter preach when he was done, they stood up and their hearts were pierced, pricked by the Word of God. It made me think of the book of Hebrews that talks about the Word of God being living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the heart and dividing us to the very core of who we are between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. Wisdom, literature in the Bible, it's intended to pierce your heart and it's intended to give stability. Nails do that. When you frame up a house and you put all these two-by-fours up and all these trusses and windows, everything's very unstable. What do you do? You use nails to hold it all together and to give it strength. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the truth that you're going to die is very, for Americans, unsettling. We'd rather talk about something else. We'd rather think about something else. But the more I read Ecclesiastes and think about it, this is what I think. I think the truth that someday you're going to die will actually hold you together throughout your life. I think you actually need to know that so that you don't fall apart as an unstable mess every time something difficult happens in your life. I think the preacher knows that. And he's laying it out as wisdom. It's vanity. It's not meaningless. It's that long. Here and gone. Like smoke, like mist, like a vapor. And you need to know that so that you hold together 
through difficult times. So it's like a goad. It's like nails. And then I want you to note this. Wisdom literature is given by, or you could say it's revealed by, the shepherd. And we're talking about the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture here. We spent a whole Wednesday night series talking about the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? And how do we interpret the Bible? And at the very beginning of that series, we talked about the Bible being inspired by God. And I think that's what the preacher is driving at here. He says it beautifully. If you look at verse 11, the words of who? The fool? No, the words of the fool are like thorns burning in a pot, and they crackle and they crackle and they're gone. We saw that in Ecclesiastes. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. The wise person has something to say that's valuable. Where does it come from? Does it come simply from their own wisdom? It's not what he says in verse 11. It says they're given by one shepherd. Now, I understand not all of your translations capitalize the S in shepherd, but I think that it ought to be capitalized. I think this is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I think it's Psalm 80 verse 1. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd gave these words to his people. And they're the words of the wise. And both of those are true. And that's what the doctrine of inspiration is. The preacher just didn't find himself overtaken by some force and his arm starts moving against his own will and out comes the book of Ecclesiastes. He had to think about it, and he had to wrestle with it, and he had to live some of it, and he had to reflect on it and meditate on it, and he had to read previous scripture, the book of Genesis, the book of Deuteronomy. He had to think about these things, and the shepherd gave him these things. Both are true. That's the doctrine of inspiration. That's how Peter describes it in the New Testament. He says, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. They did the writing. Paul did the writing in what we read earlier in Corinthians and Philippians. And as he did the writing to real people that he knew, and he's using his brain and his thinking, the Spirit of God is carrying him along so that the result is the Word of God. It's not just Paul's Word. It's God's Word. It's not just the preacher's Word, although it is that, but it's also God's Word. It's given by and it's revealed by the shepherd. Now, fill in the blank. A picture is worth a thousand words. You live in a visual culture, an image-driven culture. It's just completely pervasive in the world that we live in, and cell phones have even exacerbated that issue. If you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, they've just accelerated the fact that we live in a, an image-driven culture. Let me give you proof. Today in the church... Our ice machine broke. Okay? What do you think happened? Do you think that we got out the instruction manual and font that big and looked down and read? Or what do you think we did? YouTube. I don't want to read anything. Just show me a video. Oh, you lift the thing up, you push the button. Easy. I don't want to read about it. I just want to see that guy do it. Lift it up, push the button, ice machine fixed. Everything's great. We're image-driven. We like pictures. We like videos. This is the reason that it's easier 
to convince someone to watch a TV show about the Bible than it is to convince them to read the Bible. It is easier. I promise you it's easier. You should watch this. What do I have to do? Get the remote. Kick your feet up. Hit the button. Do nothing. I can do that. What's involved with the reading? Well, you got to get the book out. you got to open. you got to figure out where you're going to read. you got to make sense of it. Some of it's kind of confusing. I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes. Kind of confusing. Stuff in there it's hard to make sense of. Have you done Leviticus? Tough. Hebrews? Blows your mind. Some hard stuff in there. Uh, that doesn't sound very fun. David Gibson. Why didn't God reveal himself to us in a picture book? You know you're not supposed to ask this next question, but you've thought it. I know you've thought it. Why didn't Jesus enter the world at a time when he could be recorded and put on YouTube? If you haven't asked those questions, I guarantee you the college kids and the youth have. Guaranteed. And you probably have too. If you sit with a child and read a picture book Bible made up only of images with no words at all, you will find that you cannot flick the pages without opening your mouth. It happens subconsciously, and you find yourself pointing and explaining images. Understand this, images need interpreting. Images need interpreting. When I showed you the picture of the goad, the, the thing with the hook and the guy poking the animal, it's one thing to look at a picture. It's another thing for me to explain to you what's happening in a rodeo and an electric goad and all the rest. Images need to be explained. Images are powerful. They're very powerful. It's no coincidence that images dominate our culture. They're very powerful, but they're very easily misunderstood. Very easily misunderstood. So I'm just going to give you one quick thought. This is completely really ancillary to Ecclesiastes, but there's a guy named John Kerry. He wrote a book. Uh, at some point it was assigned to me. I don't think I would have read this book on my own, but the book's called What Good Are the Arts? And in the book he talks about painting and sculpting and uh, music and all sorts of art things. And he throughout the book says these are good things. They're really important things. High art, real art, not the kind of dopey stuff you see in art museums, you know, that's just like, I saw a picture of people went to an art museum, there's nothing on the wall, and they're just pretending to look at stuff. Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about real art is important, and it's valuable, and we need it. And at the end of the book, the final chapter, he says this, literature, it's writing, Literature is superior to the other arts, and it can do things they cannot do. It can do things that the other forms of art, including visual forms of art, cannot do. It's a good book to think about and wrestle with if you're interested in that sort of thing. Look what he says in verse 12 very quickly. There's a warning. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Beyond what? Beyond the words of the wise that are given by the shepherd. Beware of adding to what God has said. Beware of adding to what God has said by adding words. And be careful and be very careful and cautious. Be wary about adding to what God has said with images. Does that sound like one of the Ten Commandments to you? I'm 
going to tell you what I'm like, God says to the Hebrew people, but I don't want you to make an image. No graven images. We're not doing images. Images were powerful 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago. They've always been powerful. There's a reason most religions use images. And God said to his people, we're not doing images, we're doing words. I'm going to speak to you and you're going to listen and you're going to hear these things about me. And the preacher says, beware of adding anything beyond what God has said. Third section here, the preacher explains the end of the matter when all has been heard. So he reaches a conclusion. And I'll just say this quickly. When you read Ecclesiastes and Job, reflective wisdom literature in the Old Testament, you often feel like you're going in circles or you're backtracking or you're thinking about something that got taken off the table back here. It can be very confusing. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but I've listened to people talk about the book of Job and say things about the book of Job. And I think to myself, I don't think you read chapter three. I don't think you read all the middle chapters. Or sometimes, most of the time, I don't think you read the end of the book when Job had to repent. you got to read the whole thing to make sense of it. But in the end, you do reach a conclusion. And the preacher said, look, we've, we've started with the answer. What can man gain from all his toil under the sun? Smoke, smoke, it's all smoke. It's all going to be really quick. And then he took, took us down all these different paths and trails explored all sorts of different ideas, and he reaches the same conclusion at the end, chapter 12, verse 8, and he says in 13, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. And this is what he says. All people are called to fear God and keep God's commandments. All people are called to fear God and keep His commandments. If you get the fear part right, the keep part falls in line. The problem with the Pharisees is they focused on the keep part without the fear part. The problem with a lot of evangelical, Protestant, allegedly Bible-believing churches today is they focus on the keep part without the fear part. They're happy to give you a list of things that you need to do, but they don't give any attention to what you feel in your heart as you come before God. As a creature coming before the Creator. Fear God. Listen, that's not like the fear you felt the first time you watched a horror movie. That's a kind of fear. It's not, it's not the same kind of fear because a horror movie, everything's upside down. With God, everything is right side up and He's good. So don't fear Him like we fear something in a horror movie. But we also don't fear Him like we fear the principle or the foreman, or the president of the institution, or any human authority. It's not just a human kind of respect and awe, because he's holy. Remember back in chapter 5, the preacher said, when you come before God to worship, you should let your words be few, because you're here on earth and he's up in heaven. You're the creature, he's the creator. You're small, he's big. Your life is smoke, he lasts forever. He's the one who dwells in eternity. Fear Him. It's not terror like a horror movie. It's not respect like a human authority. But it's a right understanding of who God is. Greediness says this, to fear God is to take God seriously. Okay, stop right there. 
You go to the average evangelical church in the United States of America. Watch a service. Walk away and ask yourself, do they take this seriously? Or is this a game? Is this a joke? Fearing God is to take Him seriously. It's to acknowledge Him in our lives as the highest good to revere Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, and to center our lives on Him. Fearing God is not using God. Not using Him for some other end. That's to demean Him and to diminish Him. It's not to fear Him. So all people are called to fear God and keep God's commandments. If you get the heart right, the action will follow. I don't know if you've heard me say this. This is not the first book in the Bible. One of the previous books is the book of Deuteronomy. And I think the preacher read Deuteronomy. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 10, Moses says to the people, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to what? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all His ways. Love Him. Serve uh, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And what? Keep. Fear Him. Fear Him first. And keep his commandments and the statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. He's transcendent. He's big. You're small. Your job is to fear him and keep his commandments. Preacher is not making this stuff up. He's just pulling it from the Old Testament and he's wrestling with real life and then he's applying it and saying, you know what? Moses knew what he was talking about. Fear God, keep his commandments. We should fear God and keep His commandments because this is our purpose in life. The subplot for 99 out of 100 movies that you've seen in the last 40 years is that you should find or invent or create your own way in life. Purpose, meaning, what's most important, that's up to you to figure out. I'm going to tell you, this is the most countercultural thing that we believe as Christians today. We believe a lot of countercultural things as Bible-believing Christians. This is the most fundamental countercultural thing that we believe, is that the purpose of your life is not up for you to determine. God gets to determine it. And the purpose of your life is fearing Him and keeping His commandments. If you get that square, do you know how much of the moral chaos and the anthropological confusion in our society goes away? If you just change that way of thinking, that life is not something I get to make of it what I want it to be and determine my own purpose and meaning and value and happiness, but that God gets to determine all of those things. That's our purpose. Swine, fear God, he concludes. This pursuit identifies the grand purpose for which we are created in Eden and which remains for us still, even here in Eden lost. So that's our purpose. Lastly here, we should fear God and keep his commandments because there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Verse 13, God will bring... God will bring every deed into judgment. 
Okay, every deed, that pretty much sums it up, right? Every deed. Just in case you're not clear on that. All the secret things and all the good things and all the evil things. Every deed. Secret things, good things, evil things. All of these things will be brought into judgment. This is one of the reasons, maybe the biggest reason, in Ecclesiastes, why you should not translate the word hebel meaningless. Nothing is meaningless in your life. None of it. Not one second is without meaning. Because in the end, everything, every deed, every thought, every emotion, Every word, every action will be brought into judgment. The secret ones, just like the public ones, the good ones, and the evil ones. Riken, Ecclesiastes ends with a warning of judgment, not a promise of grace, but this warning still points us to the gospel. So it's not the last book in the Bible, and we'll end with some thoughts of application. I'll give you these quickly. The assurance of judgment is good news and bad news. This promise that everything's going to be brought into judgment. It's good news and bad news. Good news. Remember back in chapter 7 and 8? The preacher says, I've seen good people suffering, and I've seen wicked people living high on the hog. In the end, everything's going to get sorted out. So you don't have to worry about that too much now in this little bitty short window of life. Remember the story we saw earlier in Ecclesiastes where there was this little poor guy in this town that saved the whole town from the invading army and they thought it was so great that they didn't get conquered and then the preacher says, a day later they all forgot him. Human beings forget good things that we do. Have you ever had somebody do that? You do something really nice for them? And they just forget it. God won't forget it. Everything, secret, good, evil, things we forget, all of it will be brought into judgment. It's good news. Nothing's meaningless. It's also bad news. You remember Ecclesiastes 7.20? There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Not one. So that means you and me, at some point, will face a judgment of everything, every deed, secret things, good things, and even evil things. And it's coming quick. It's coming quick because your life is hebel, is smoke. It's coming quicker than you'd like. You ever have one of those nightmares where you're not ready for something? You're not dressed properly or you're not ready to take a test or... If you're a preacher, you have a nightmare, you didn't study, and now it's time to get up, and you're also wearing your swimsuit, and you think, I'm not ready to do this, I haven't studied, I'm not dressed for this, and what's happening right now, I'm not ready. That's a terrible feeling, is it? I'm not ready for it. Ecclesiastes says a day is coming when some people will discover they're not ready for the most important event in the world, and it won't be a dream. Acts 17 says God has fixed a day for judgment. Romans 2 says God has a day set 
where he will judge the secrets of men and women. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says all of us will stand before the judgment seat. And the book of Hebrews says it's appointed to a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to die once and then face judgment. Gibson says your death and the judgment to follow the great fixed points of your life, the very things that you can reach back are the very things that can reach back from the future into today and transform the life God has given you to live. Living life backwards. So two last thoughts very quickly. We've talked about the word of God tonight. The shepherd gave these words. Understand that the New Testament describes Jesus as the word of God incarnate. And not coincidentally, the New Testament describes Jesus as a good shepherd. Both of these ideas in Ecclesiastes 12. He's the word of God in human flesh. The creator who entered creation to redeem sinful people like you and me, wicked people, evil people. And you see that described beautifully in John 10 when he says, I'm the good shepherd in, in the new covenant. The good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. It's not going to be the sheep that have to die so the shepherd can live. It's going to be the shepherd who dies so the sheep can live. Last, Christians know that their labor or their toil is not in vain. It's not Hebel. And they know that death is gain. And we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 1, so we won't revisit those. But Paul says to the church in Corinth, you know that because of the truth of the resurrection and that Christ will come again and that you will be raised, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a waste. It's not meaningless. It will actually have impact for eternity. And he says to the church in Philippi, I know that death is coming for me, and I also want to be back with you, but I want to be with Jesus, and in the end, I'm going to be delivered one way or the other. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the driving question of Ecclesiastes. What can you gain for all your toil under the sun? Well, if you live for Christ, it's gain. And if you die in Christ, it's gain. And your toil is not in vain it's not wasted at all. There's a man named C.T. Studd. You should look up his story. It's a fascinating story. He was a world-class cricketer. So he was like a, a great early 1900s, a great phenomenal cricket player. Think baseball when cricket was almost as cool as baseball. An amazing athlete. He gave it all up. He became a missionary in China. And he's amazingly quotable. And his most famous quote, I think, is a good way to end our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. You've probably heard this poem. You maybe didn't know that it's from C.T. Studd. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. Um, Father, forgive us when we uh, don't have a heart to see truth and beauty in the scriptures. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see these things. God, we're thankful for the book of Ecclesiastes. It's such an honest book. And we live in a dishonest culture. And so we need to hear things that are true. Um, we need to hear them beautifully written. And we need them to transform the way that we live. 
We need these things to goad us along in life, and we need these things to pierce our hearts, and we need these things to give us stability in life uh, when life itself is very unstable in a fallen world. God, we're thankful that Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, and we're thankful that it's not the last word in the Bible because we know that left to ourselves, standing before you in judgment, uh, we have no hope. Our deeds are evil. Our hearts are evil. And so we thank you that Jesus, the Word of God, the Good Shepherd, came and He lived among us and He laid down His life that we could be forgiven of our sins and that we could know true and eternal life and that we could find victory in Christ. So Lord, as your people, before we rush off, we just want to thank you and celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus, the life that we have in Jesus. Uh, We thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.